0: Uh, but let's let us jump in. Uh, we are getting near the end of the book of Hebrews, and uh, we are in this last chapter. Uh, originally, I thought this would be our last week. I thought I could just do it all, all chapter thirteen in one sweep. But then, when I started working through my sermon, I was like, "Uh, uh-uh, nope." <laughs> so, we're, we're going to be here at least one more week. We'll see. Um, But we are in chapter 13. We are looking at verses 1 through 6. Hebrews 13 verses 1 through 6 says this. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body let marriage be held in high held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for god will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said i will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say the lord is my helper i will not fear what can man do to me? That sends our reading of God's breathed-out word. May all who hear it be living in this brotherly love that comes through Jesus Christ. In the year 1990, Pastor Randy Elkhorn—maybe some of you know that name along with some other dedicated Christians, were arrested and then sued by an abortion clinic for talking with 10 women and talking them out of getting abortions on a particular day. Pastor Alcorn and his friends ended up losing their case, and the court ordered them to pay $47,000 in damages. In order to prevent... The, the garnishment of his wages and having the church's money go towards the murder of unborn children, Pastor Elkhorn resigned from his position as pastor and began taking on a pay of minimum wage. Because according to Oregon law, wages can't be garnished. that That is minimum wage or less. Well, a year later, Pastor Elkhorn was sued again along with some of these same friends of him, only this time by a different abortion clinic. And again, the abortion clinic won in court. And they were ordered to pay this time $8.2 million. And the judge's reasoning behind that ridiculous amount was that the judge would thought it would prevent this group from preaching the gospel again to, to these pregnant women. But just, just like the time before, because of Oregon law, Pastor Randy, well, he wasn't pastor anymore, but Randy had to remain at minimum wage in order to prevent his wages from being garnished. Well, by this time, Randy had become a notable author. And because of his media exposure, his books were in high demand. But again, Randy couldn't get paid any of these royalties unless the money would go to these abortion clinics. And so all the profits that came through these books that he wrote ended up being donated to charities. And and for the next 20 years, actually, until the enforcement ran its course, Randy Elkhorn remained being paid minimum wage. We have now reached the, the last chapter of this amazing yet challenging letter entitled Hebrews. And while we won't finish today, we, we should never, nevertheless begin starting to think about what we've learned from this letter. We should try to ponder and look back on all the lessons that God has taught us. And as we look at our verses for today, we should keep in mind why this letter was written in the first place. It was written to encourage the church, a church that was going through rough, rough times. This was the body of Christ that was being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, some of the members, if you you recall, some of the members had renounced Christ altogether. They, they had gone back to their Jewish roots thinking that that would keep them safe. And yet in doing so, they had actually placed themselves in a, themselves in a greater danger and in an eternal danger. For they had rejected the Son of God, the very one who had proven to be better than anything that their Jewish roots had to offer. For this Jesus he was the only one who could forgive them of their sins. He was the only one who could rescue them from the from the judgment that is to come. And no more did we see this in our, than in our text from last week, when, when we saw those two mountains. Remember, there was there was Mount Sinai, the the mountain that was engulfed in darkness and gloom, and, and as well as a smoldering fire, where the old covenant law, the old covenant law was was given was given by the booming voice of the Lord by this unapproachable God and then there was Mount Zion right the the unshakable kingdom the where where the new covenant established by the blood of Jesus this blood that speaks a better word a a word of welcome and it is this mountain that is of utmost importance. Because a judgment is coming. A a shaking that will tremble the nation and, and will cause all those who have turned their backs on Christ to be utterly ruined. For our God is a consuming fire. That's why Mount Zion is so, so important. Because it is that unshakable kingdom. And all this leads us to today, in the beginning of this final chapter in the book of Hebrews. A chapter where our author gives to his readers some final commands, some final instructions. It's actually in this chapter where we, we, where we it feels less like a sermon and more like a letter now. Let's, let's look at how he starts off. Look at, look at verse 1 says this, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. The, the Greek word that is used here, I don't know if you know the Greek language at all, but there's uh, four different words that they use for love. And the and the Greek word that's used here for love is Philadelphia. Heard of it before? <laughs> Got a city, right? Um and it means a fraternal affection or 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 a kindness that is shown to the brethren. And, and so when we speak of brotherly love, we are not merely speaking of this emotion that is felt, rather, we are speaking of something that is far more tangible. We are speaking about a, a devotion that runs so deep that, that it directs not only our thoughts but our actions as well. You see, this concept of Brotherhood was a concept that the Israelites had in the Old Testament. That that, that if you were a child of Jacob, that that, that if you were of Jewish descent, then you were a brother. And as a brother, you would be loved, you'd be looked after, you'd be cared for in your time of need. But the question now arose who is my brother? Right? You remember uh, one one of the religious leaders asked Jesus that question Who is my brother? And Jesus gave the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Um, You see, now that Christ has come and now that salvation has been given to the Gentiles, are we supposed to treat them as brothers as well? Do all who believe in Jesus. Are they our brothers now? Our author of Hebrews says this, Let brotherly love continue. Let not this good thing that we once had die away simply because the kingdom has expanded. And so you are to look out for one another. You are to care for one another. You are to respect one another and have one another's back. And this is what we'll see as we go through this text. Ways that we can continue in brotherly love. For in our next four verses, we will see four commandments to this church concerning brotherly love. To give you a brief outline, in verse verse 2, we we see this challenge to demonstrate hospitality to strangers. And then in verse 3, we see this similar task Uh, as our author wants us to be ministering to those who are suffering for the gospel. And what we'll discover is that these two commands, they're they're closely linked. For they demonstrate how we are to treat one another, even when it is difficult to do so. These are outward expressions of brotherly love. And then in verses 4 and 5, we'll find two more commands that, that are akin to one another. There is fidelity in our marriages, as well as contentment in what God has given to us in this life. Again, they're closely related. As they both deal with the inward temptations that can arise as life gets difficult to manage. You see, our author, he chose these two vices not only because they were common to man, but but because they can become a snare to us when life gets tough. And so today we're going to look at these four commands, showing us four ways to demonstrate brotherly love towards one another. So let's take a closer look at each one, starting with hospitality. Look Look at verse two. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, in the first century, hospitality was crucial to the Christian church. You see, not only was it expensive for someone to stay at an inn, but but those establishments, they carried with them bad reputations. Only certain people went to the inns, if you know what I mean. Therefore, it was, it was commonplace, not just in the Christian world, but, but in the broader context of the Roman Empire, for, for kind citizens to, to take people into their homes who were traveling through their city. And, and for first century Christians, this was especially important as, as the church was being established. For there were many traveling missionaries as well as apostles who who were going from town to town and they needed to be cared for as they served the church. And yet showing such hospitality could come at a cost. We see examples of this in the book of Acts. Look Look at Acts 17 verses 1 through 9. It says this, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. What we see in this story is what could possibly happen to those who showed hospitality to an apostle of Jesus Christ. What happened to Jason? He got dragged from his home, publicly shamed, and then fined. And now our author in the book of Hebrews is encouraging such practices. Why? What does he say? Because when you do such things, not only are you are you serving your fellow brother, but you are serving Christ as well. Thereby some have entertained angels unawares. This is a reference to the to the story of Lot. If you know his story, when when he was living in Sodom and Gomorrah, he showed hospitality to two angels. And because he showed such hospitality, because he was merciful to these two strangers, God chose to rescue both Lot and his family. Rescue them from the destruction of those cities. But it's not just hospitality that demonstrates brotherly love, but it's also ministering to those who who suffer for the gospel. Look at at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now we've talked about this before, have we not? That that to be in prison in these ancient times was was tantamount to to being put to death unless you had friends on the outside. For there was no food provided in these prisons, no doctor that would come and take care of your knees should you get sick. The nights would be, would be damp, would be cold. And unless you were well clothed or, or had a covering, you would be suffering. And this is why our author wants us here is to remember these men. To remember those who were in chains for Christ. He, he wanted the church to, to, to care for these people. as as if they themselves were in prison with them. But such kindness was not just for those in prison, but for everyone within the church who who takes upon suffering for Christ's sake. They were to minister to those who were being persecuted as well. They were to be there for them, for them in in their time of need, demonstrating this brotherly love. And look at the reasoning that our author gives because because you also are in the body. You also are in the body. When it comes to the Church of Jesus Christ, this metaphor of of a body is one that the Bible uses so often, right? And it's meant to communicate this type of unity that that, that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's saying that we should be so closely knit together that when one thread gets snagged, it has an impact on all the other threads. Look what the Apostle Paul has to say. He has this famous passage in the book of Corinthians concerning the body of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verses 21 through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which are more presentable parts, do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so when a brother or sister is suffering for Jesus Christ, we should be suffering right alongside them. It's as if every meal they miss causes us to hunger. Every time they, they shiver from, from a cold night in prison, it, it should send chills into our own bodies. Every strike, every blow that they receive because they will not deny Jesus should be sending sharp, shooting pains into our own backs. And so what we see in in our passage today, what our our author is asking of this congregation and and is asking of us, is that we risk our own comforts, our own well-being in order to stand side by side with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's not just how we treat one another when under duress, but it's also the temptations that will inevitably come when hard times hit. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You've got to love the wording of our author here. He, he isn't just tearing down sexual sin and adultery, but he is lifting high marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Listen, marriage is not a matter that we should treat lightly. Rather, it is to be esteemed by God's people. It is to be cherished. It is to be loved. And that's because it was established by God for God's glory. In fact, it is a reflection of the gospel. That's how the Apostle Paul speaks of it. It is this picture of the intimate relationship that God has with his people. Just as the husband is ahead head of the wife, so Christ is the head of the church. And yet, in order to, to, to keep the marriage bed undefiled, it, it requires restraint. Restraint from the temptations of this world. And yet often these temptations can grow quite strong, particularly when life becomes difficult. Am I right? You see, in, in the Greco-Roman world, many viewed marital fidelity as unreasonable. In fact, among the Roman elite, it was, it was pretty much expected that men would take upon a miss, mistress or two. And, and what this did to these Christian men is it, is it added a lot of pressure. Pressure because adultery was the acceptable practice of their day. It was accepted by their neighbors. And when a sin becomes acceptable in a society, suddenly that sin doesn't seem as heinous as it once did. This is what we talked about in our morning Bible study, is it not? Why do people try to get people, other people to do the same sins that they do? Because if it becomes acceptable, if it's an acceptable practice, suddenly... I don't feel the guilt I once felt. Right? Now imagine living in a time when, because of your faith, because of your, your your claim that Jesus Christ is King, you're experiencing great hardship. You were suffering. And now imagine how much more would be that temptation to run after these sinful pleasures. When society at large was actually applauding these pleasures. Where you could just forget uh, about your troubles if you just run into the arms of that mistress. How many of you have ever excused sin because you've told yourself that life is just too unfair. And that you deserve some type of happiness where you knew that that what you're doing was wrong, yet you decided to do it anyways because it it would at least get your mind off your other troubles. I mean, after all, is what I'm doing really that bad? Everybody else is doing it, so why shouldn't I? What What our author is telling us here is that such thinking is not okay with God. Let, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. In other words, don't act like your pagan neighbors, and don't think the way that society wants you to think, minimizing the commands of God. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous Now, now there are two ways that the marriage bed is defiled. And we've already talked about the one, adultery, right? When you betray your vows and cheat on your spouse. But our author also mentions the sexually immoral. Who are they? they? They would be those who commit sexual acts outside of the marriage covenant. I mean, this that covers adultery as well, but this pretty much covers any type of of sexual act that is performed by a person that is not married. In in other words, sex outside of marriage is not permitted. And yet when you think about this, isn't this the more acceptable sin in our society today? The sin of sexual immorality? The sin of sex outside marriage? Of marriage? You you see, as much as we have distorted what marriage is, adultery is still frowned upon, is it not? Yet sex outside of marriage has somehow become the norm. We, we, We treat it as if it is no big deal. Bottom line is this God has reserved sex for the marriage bed only. And anything outside of that is an affront to him and will be judged. But the question must be asked, why do we do this? Why do we defile the the marriage bed when we don't have to? I think it is because deep down, we don't trust God. We don't believe that that his ways are will satisfy our desires. And so we cheat on our spouses and we have sex before we're married. And the reason we do so is because we're not content with God's plan. Dear friends, do not kid yourself. God is not pleased. For for if you are committing these acts outside of marriage, what you have essentially done is, is taking this good gift that God has given to you and, and you have smashed it. You have broken it to pieces. Think, think of sex as this priceless Ming vase when, when, when set properly displays the beauty that its creator intended. Yet if you play with it like a, like a child's toy, if, you, if you're tossing it around and trying to kick it like a ball, it's going to get smashed. It's going to shatter into a million pieces. And that, my friends, is, is exactly what happens when the marriage bed is defiled. Everything gets broken. Not only you, the one who's committing this act, not only the one who you're committing that act with, but your spouse as well, or your future spouse if you're not yet married. Everybody gets hurt. Everybody gets broken. And all because you didn't trust in God's plan. Because you were not content. But it's not just our discontentment in the area of sex that our author warns us about. For there is also this temptation to be discontent with what you own. Look at verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now if you remember one of the ways that this early church was being persecuted was through the plundering of their property. This is what we read about back in chapter 10. Look at at chapter 10, verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Many of these people in this church had their worldly possessions ripped away from them, all for the name of Jesus Christ. And so you can see how easy it would have been for them to develop a love for money, to have that security that comes from having wealth. And again, this is an issue of contentment. Today we live in a commercialized society, do we not? And so every day we are inundated with reasons to not be content. I mean, think about the task of an advertiser. And what is their job? Their job is to get you to buy things that you do not need. So they tell you that, that your life is incomplete unless you buy their stuff. And these men and these women, they're good at their job. They end up convincing us that their stuff is necessary. And so what do we do? We buy their stuff, right? And we do so because we think that their stuff is going to make us happy. It's going to make our life complete. But in order to buy their stuff, we need money. And so we love money, do we not? We worship money. Because it is money that has given to us everything that we think we need. And so we bend the knee to the almighty dollar. But what happens when the money goes away? Or what if we never had money to begin with? For, for many of us, being poor can drive us to become bitter. And we're bitter because the world keeps telling us that we can't be happy unless we have their stuff. And we can't get their stuff because we don't have the money. And so suddenly, our happiness seems out of reach. And we become discontent. But why? Why are we discontent? Why are we so unhappy? It's for the same reason when we talked about sexual sin because we don't trust God. We don't believe that that He will take care of us or that we can find joy in Him alone. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. He who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. I think there's some wisdom to those words. You see, I, I have become convinced that if persecution is going to start here in the States, it's going to begin with our love of money. I mean, that's what they did to, to Pastor Elkhorn, is it Not? They they wanted to take him for all he's worth. They, they they tried to break him by attacking his wallet. And that's what they'll do to us if they get the chance. They'll, they'll push against against our greed and threaten to take away our stuff. To, to take away our possessions. Because that's what we value the most. And so they'll threaten your job. They'll threaten your bank account. They'll threaten to take away your property. And as a Christian, you need to prepare yourself, prepare yourself to be able to lose such things. Listen, if you don't love Christ more than you love your possessions, then you will break. For the only way that you can stand strong the the only way that you can resist the pressure that will come is if you find contentment in God alone if you are like the apostle paul who said this i know how to be brought low and i know how to abound in any and every circumstance i have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need and what is the secret verse 13 I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, no matter what circumstance Paul found himself in, he was content. And he found that contentment in his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ was his treasure. And it was Christ who carried him through the roughest of times. Let me ask you, are you content with where God has you? Will your contentment change if your circumstances change? In other words, do you have a love for money or do you have a love for God? This is what Jesus talked about in his Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, money comes and money goes, but God's promises remain. And God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you look to this God, this God who will always be on your side, then, then my friends, you will never, you will never be discontent. That's his promise. Look look at our last verse. Look at verse 6. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Pastor Elcorn put his trust in the Lord. And the Lord taught him. It was a rough lesson, but he taught him what it means to be content in all circumstances. And now even today, the the, the profits from his book, they still go to charities, even though they no longer have to. Randy, he he has now given away far more than that $8.2 million. In fact, he had reached that figure over three years ago. And that's just it. When, When you put your trust in God alone, then you are able to show a brotherly love through even the most trying of circumstances. You're able to show hospitality, even when it costs you, even when they drag you out into the streets. You are able to stand by those who are publicly shamed by by those who have their freedoms taken from them. And you can do so even though it may mean that you too will one day be put into the same position as them. And when you put your trust in God, you will also be able to withstand the temptations of this world. Everything that they throw out at you. And the reason you can do so is because you will find your contentment in Christ alone. And the reason you can do that, what did it say in our our last verse? Because he is your helper. Think about that. God is my helper. That means He is right by your side. He is watching out for you. He is protecting you. He is guiding you. He is the one showing you this brotherly love. That's what He did when He went to the cross. He cared for you. He cared for you enough to take upon your suffering and place it upon himself when he died for your sins. And now he will carry you through every storm that comes your way. Because that's the kind of God he is. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And it doesn't get much better than that. Let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing that on our own we are too weak to do these things. We we, we cannot show brotherly love in our own strength. We are too worried about what we could lose. We're too concerned about what we are going to miss out on. That's why we need your strength. It's why we need your Holy Spirit. And it's why we claim the promise that you have written to us. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so we believe that that you will continue to work your salvation in us that very salvation that began at the cross of Christ when Jesus bled and died for our sins. And so we ask you to help us. Help us so that we, so that we could continue in brotherly love. Continue until either our dying days or until your son returns. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.